The following resource is from DesiringGod.org. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for strength for us all now to have a mouth to speak and ears to hear so that your word and how it directs us to fight for joy will be rightly understood and rightly appropriated so that we do this battle in the most fruitful, successful way in our ministries. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the first message, I said that Christian hedonism is a life devoted to experiencing Christ himself as our supreme treasure with as much satisfaction in this life and the next as possible. And I argued that that life is essential, necessary for glorifying God as he deserves. The entire emphasis of the message was on vertical Christian hedonism, not horizontal Christian hedonism. That is, it was on the focus, it was a focus on the fact that experiencing joy in Christ is the key to glorifying Christ. That's vertical. So Christ gives joy, joy glorifies Him. I call that vertical hedonism. The focus was not on the fact that experiencing that joy in Christ is the key to loving people. That's horizontal Christian hedonism. So putting the two together, Christian hedonism is a life devoted to maximizing joy in Christ as the key to glorifying God and loving people. It's the key to worship and virtue. If you cultivate a way of life that ignores or opposes that pursuit of joy in Christ, you will not worship God and you will not love people as you ought. That's vertical and horizontal Christian hedonism. Now, the reason I'm bringing it up is because horizontal Christian hedonism And how we as Christians are called to love people raises for me a fight or a struggle for joy that's different from the fight at the vertical level alone. So, I'm not going to walk you through seven decades of reflections on the fight for joy. I'm going to bring you in to more recent years of what I think will be most helpful and manageable, uh, namely clarifying discoveries about how horizontal Christian hedonism, the relationship between joy and loving people, works. How does that work? Because therein lies a different fight than the fight for joy at the vertical level alone. It's not exactly the same. So let's begin by stating that how it works here. What's the battle here and how does that relate to this? That is, how does joy sought right here vertically 
relate to loving people. And I, here's the way I put it. Genuine love for people, Christ-exalting love for people, is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. So first there's joy in God, and then there's overflow. Or, whenever I say that when I'm preaching, I want to say it again a little differently, and I'm not sure, I am sure that most people don't know why I make the wording change, but I'm going to explain to you. So here's what I follow it up with. I say Christ-exalting love for people is the effort to expand our joy in Christ by including others in it. It's a little different, isn't it, than just saying love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. The difference between those two is not that one is rooted in joy in God and the other's not. That's not the difference. One is more passive, I get full, I overflow. And the other's more active, I am seeking more joy by doing something that will enlarge my joy in Christ. They're not the same in the fight that they call for. Now, if that second definition of love is true, it's biblical, namely the, the active effort. I'm going to test it. I'm, I'm just raising it now as a, what I believe and say, but I haven't given any basis for it yet. If that's a, a biblical understanding of love, the active effort to do things lovingly, toward others, to love people, so that my joy in Christ grows, expands, enlarges, then I must fight for joy at two very significantly different levels. Let's talk about level one just a minute, just to get clarity. I'm mainly interested in this message in clarifying level two because that's where my fight has been most recently, trying to discover things about myself and, and the Word and God and joy and love. So the first level is the foundational experience of joy in Christ, the fight to see him as he is in his word and savor what you see there so that there's something to overflow. And I don't, I don't take back any of that. That's, that is absolutely essential. That's where the Christian life begins, the foundational experience of seeing him for who he really is. It's a Holy Spirit miracle. It comes with the new birth. It's 2 Corinthians 4, 4 to 6, where the blindness is removed. We see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's our treasure, and that's where it all starts. And that overflows in love. And so there's a, the reason I say there's a fight for that is because even though it is a punctiliar experience to be born again, it's a punctiliar experience to be justified by faith, not a process. 
that joy has to be preserved, sustained, intensified over time or you will lose it. The New Testament demands strategies, means of grace by which we keep seeing Christ and keep enjoying Christ and thus have something within us to overflow with. So the the battle for joy at level one is always a battle to see Christ for who he really is with the effort that before we do obedience, we are at peace and rest with God, enjoying him. And obedience isn't producing that. That's going to produce obedience. That's the way I've usually talked about it. It's true. It's essential. If you lose it, you lose everything. You're not a Christian. Try to obey yourself into joy and have no joy with which to obey. You're not a Christian. But there's a second level of fighting for joy now that I'm going to try to analyze with you. A second level, a conscious effort, a battle to do practical acts of love which when you do them you experience more joy in Christ himself. It's not like here's joy in Jesus and then by loving people there's joy in another reality that's Better and more than Jesus. No. The argument is there's a way to see Christ in the gospel as beautiful that that changes all your other treasures into dung and makes him your supreme treasure. Now I'm going to argue that 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 moment enables and empowers overflow, but it also awakens you to the fact that if you experience that overflow or pursue him through love, there's more of him, more of him to be known in loving people. Okay, that's that's where we're going. At this point in my Trying to understand this, it seems to me that in our our gospel-centered movement, things have gotten a little muddy recently. Recently, I mean, last 20 or 30 years. Muddy. Um, I think there's significant confusion uh, in how to respond to the hundreds of New Testament commandments. that we should do certain things and not do other things. I think there's a real skittishness in the way gospel preachers approach the commandments of the New Testament. Here's what I mean. Things like, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Live in harmony with one another. 
Repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves. Put away falsehood. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Let the thief no longer steal. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Put away all bitterness and wrath. Be kind to one another. Sexual immorality, not even named among you. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. Don't get drunk with wine. Children, obey your parents and hundreds more. Those are from Romans 12 and and Ephesians 4. Hundreds of imperatives. I think there's 130 in James. How do these commandments from Romans and Ephesians, not Moses, relate to the gospel? How do they relate to love? How do they relate to joy? And my Christian hedonist passion to maximize my joy in this life and the next. And yes, commandments is the right word. You don't like that word. Aren't they like principles? (laughs) By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Entolas. Same word. As in the phrase in Ephesians 2, he abolished the law of commandments. First John 3, 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, God in him. Can't be any joy without abiding in God. 1 John 5, 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. These are new covenant people, spirit-filled people being told we must obey the commandments of God. 1 Corinthians 7, 9, that was John, here's Paul. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the end alone of God, the commandments. That's why I use that word. It's provocative. We don't like to to talk about, whoa, apostolic commandments. Like commands would be a little better. Principles would be easier. Stop this commandment talk. Well, I won't because it's there. We're going to love the Bible. We're not going to love systems above the Bible. So mainly what I want to do in this message is take you into my struggle And my fight for joy at this second level, the fight or the effort to increase my joy in Christ himself through doing acts of obedience of the commandments of the New Testament, which they call me to do. And I can feel the vibrations of gospel-centered people as I try to describe my fight for joy in terms of a fight for obedience to commandments, ooey, 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 that's not good. That is not a good framework. The, the only proper strategy for fighting for joy is to send people back to the gospel, send them back to rehearse the gospel, to say that Jesus died for my sins, I'm forgiven, I'm loved, I'm accepted, I'm justified. Pursue obedience? No, no, don't say that. 
don't say pursue obedience to the apostolic commandments in order to find the fullness of your joy in Christ. That sounds way too legalistic. Like you're earning by doing your obedience. So, is this even a right way to pose the question about how to fight for joy? Isn't, isn't striving just the opposite of resting in the gospel so that love can be a fruit? Fruit, fruit, Piper. Fruit. You don't push fruit out. You don't strive for fruit, do you? Isn't that obvious, Piper, that you're posing the question all wrong? Isn't it obvious that joy is a gift? It precedes and it enables acts of love. Not the other way around. As if doing good deeds produced joy. If that were true, how in the world could you call it a fruit of the Holy Spirit? Isn't it obvious that you're setting these folks up all wrong? No, it's not obvious at all. And you will see that soon enough. It's just obvious if, if your gospel-centeredness is parochial, that it's biblically parochial, it's picking and choosing in the Bible, in the New Testament. There are two levels at which I fight for joy. And I want to talk about this second one mainly. But the, the first level, again, is so foundational and I'm so jealous that you not think I'm leaving it behind. Let me describe it again, give you a text for it. Um, the first level is the fight to preserve, sustain, intensify the initial God-given joy that comes through the new birth, first faith, justification by faith alone, acceptance with God, forgiveness of my, my guilt, the promise that I'll be secure forever in Him. That joy is given as a gift in conversion, it can't be taken away. It's rooted in God's saving work in Christ. So we see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And that's the treasure that has satisfied our souls. Paul calls it, not only did Jesus call it a treasure in Matthew 13:44 found a treasure hidden in the field, went and sold everything you had to buy that treasure. When Paul is finished with his magnificent documentation of how we get this treasure in 2 Corinthians 4.4, where the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And verse 6 solves the problem with God spoke light into our hearts so that we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The next verse, he calls it a treasure, right? We have this treasure in earthen vessels. The treasure is I've seen him for who he is. That's conversion, and that's foundational. That's the beginning of love. Without it, no love, period, no love. It's not Christ-exalting love if it doesn't start there. 
So I'm hammering on that, lest you think that this battle I'm going to talk to you about, level two, somehow cancels that out, diminishes it, makes it less essential. It doesn't. The way that first joy relates to love is found in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. It's my favorite go-to text. I'm going to just give it to you and then and show you why it's, it's not enough. Biblically, this is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We know, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. This is, this is now grace that has shown up in Macedonia, poured down, forgives sins, takes away guilt, establishes love and acceptance from God. The grace of God has been poured out on the churches of Macedonia for, we see it like this, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy. So grace came, joy rose, abundance of joy overflowed in extreme poverty, overflowed in a wealth of liberality towards others. That's my paradigm. I've spoken on that, goodness knows, I love it. hundred times, I want people to know grace, full of joy, overflowing love, yes. I'm not taking it back. I just wanna be a Bible guy, not a hedonist guy, mainly, right? You're all, some of you just getting exposed to this Christian hedonism thing for the first time. Say, whoa, that's dangerous stuff. You know, you get a system like that going, you just force every verse into it. Well, not if you grew up in Bill Piper's home. Ruth Piper, we were Bible people. Thank God for fundamentalists. May their tribe increase. Just a few edges knocked off. Not, not many, though. Not many. We need edges today more than we've ever needed them. That's another sermon. Do a, do a conference on that sometime. So that joy that comes through justification by faith and acceptance and forgiveness, and this makes people want to leap and dance, overflows in love and it, it's rightly described as not being pulled up by buckets of obedience but gushing up like a spring and overflowing it's a miracle I don't want to contaminate that like oh he's slipping obedience is in the ground of justification I'm not So that's been my typical paradigm for explaining how horizontal Christian hedonism works. Love to people is the overflow of joy in Christ, because that is what 2 Corinthians 8 2 says. It could not be clearer. <laughs> be, to be biblical is to believe this. To preach is to preach for joy for the sake of love and the glory of Jesus through the joy vertically and through the love horizontally. That's what we do because that's right there in the text in, in 2 Corinthians. Now the question is, am I going to revel in that discovery? No. <laughs> 
The discovery of vertical Christian hedonism was awesome. The discovery of horizontal Christian hedonism and how love is the overflow of that joy was awesome. I love it. Am I going to revel in that all my days and blind myself to text after text? This is more. No, I'm not. I'm not. Now, is there more joy? Not because Christ as our joy is less, but because joy in Christ himself is tasted in more ways than justification. What about conscious effort to not sin, not grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30, or not wound the conscience, 1 Corinthians 8.12, or not displease God, 1 Thessalonians 4.1, not diminish joy, which we'll see in a minute, or positively do acts of love which bring, really, more joy in Christ himself than you had through justification. Really? Is that in the Bible? Is that, is that somehow diminishing to justification? New birth. And the miracle that's wrought there of opening our eyes to rejoice in Jesus. If it's true that the sinning of a Christian diminishes joy in Christ, which I'm going to argue it does. If it's true positively that Christian acts of love increases joy in Christ, then the fight for joy, you see this now, you see where we're going. The fight for joy has two levels. There's that first fight to see him clearly in his word and in his saving work on the cross and in the resurrection and his justifying by faith alone and the spectacular, majestic Christ satisfying my soul before one act of obedience, before one act of obedience. Except the obedience to receive him for who he is, called faith. If that's true, then not only do I fight to preserve that joy, my first love, but if there's more of him to be known, savored, tasted by killing sins, like not clicking on pornography or... Um, Loving people, like doing something sacrificial to make someone else hopeful forever. If there's more of him out there and he's offering it to me, in fact, he's bidding me, he's commanding me, get this, I want that. I'm a hedonist. I'm a hedonist. I want that. So my answer is yes, there is more joy in Christ himself in and after acts of love than we had before. There is expanded joy in Christ that comes 
through killing sin by the Spirit. Romans 8.13. That comes from walking in obedience to the law of Christ. Law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.21, Galatians 6.2. Law of Christ which is probably summed up in the law of love, but it's spelled out in all the hundreds of ways that the path is narrow that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Here's the reason this second fight for joy does not diminish the cross and its accomplishment for us but rather enlarges our knowledge of it, our experience of it, and our joy in it. Here's the reason. When Christ shed his blood, Luke 22:20 says, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. You with me? He identifies his blood shedding as the blood of the new covenant. What does that mean? It means he bought the new covenant with this blood. The new covenant comes true for the new people of God through their coming under the blood of the covenant. What did the new covenant promise which was bought by the blood and which if you experience, you will experience more of the preciousness of the blood, not moving beyond the blood. Well, you all know what it promised from Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. It promised forgiveness of sins. That's the first level. Oh, thank you, new covenant blood. My sins are covered. Righteousness is imputed. That is secured and bought not by anything I do, but by the blood of Jesus. What else was promised in the new covenant? This, Ezekiel 36, 27. I will put my spirit within them and cause them to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's not blood plus. That's blood. He bought that for you. He died that that would happen. Not a wish. That is no more a divine wish for you than your justification. It's done. We're Calvinists. That is, we believe God does what he does to save his people. He doesn't save unholy people. He saves holy people. That is, he saves the ungodly, makes them holy, brings them to heaven. Without holiness, no one sees the Lord. That holiness is not finally up to you. It's a work of the Spirit bought by the blood of Jesus. To taste it in your life is to taste more of Christ crucified. Let me give you some texts. See if I can help you feel this, what I, what I feel more, more recently, say in the last several years of my life and, and months. Let's go to Romans chapter 5, verses 2 to 5. 
We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, I would argue that hope, right, that joy there is a given with new birth. The joy that is awakened is a preference for God and a future with Him than anything else. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Wow, so you got this joy rooted in justification and the opening of a future with God in glory, absolutely secured by the blood of Jesus. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, it's the logic in Paul's apostolic mind of how that works that makes all the difference. So watch, follow it carefully. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces, and you get this lame translation, character. Come back to that. Documain, documain, documazo, super important word group in the New Testament. Come back to that. And character or documain produces hope. So we're back to hope. We're back to hope. But we got there through suffering. And hope does not put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. So first, verse 2, there is joy in the hope of the glory of God. That's a given. That's where we start. Without that, we can't even be Christians. Then there's rejoicing in suffering and let me just rehearse the logic again so you can see. Experientially, how does this work? How is this more? How is this not only but? I want this. If that's true, I want that. Number one, because suffering produces hupomonane. Hupomonane, patient endurance. Patient endurance. So suffering comes. You either get mad at God you either go numb or you have hupomonane. Okay. I didn't want this. He ordained it. I'm taking it. It's hupomonane. It's, it's endurance. That hupomonane is patience without anger to God. That's what hupomonane is. What does hupomanane do as, as it lasts a week, a month, years? What does it do? It produces dokimane. What's that? It is the quality of being tested and found real. Test. A dokime, a doc, when dokimazo happens, you're tested. You prove like gold in fire. The result of golden fire coming through with all the dross burned out is docky main. So, character just misses all that. The, the suffering comes. 
By grace, by blood-bought grace, I don't get angry at God. I submit, I maintain my, like Jason said, my untouchable joy in Him. And the result of that is, I passed. I passed the test. Approvedness is the best I can do with a word in English. Approvedness. I have a sense I'm real. I'm real. Meaning, he just did for me something more than justification. He just kept me from blasphemy. He just preserved in me a love for him and I have now found myself to be not a hypocrite. I'm a, a documented Christian. I'm approved. I, I last I got through the fire. There's gold in me by grace. And that works hope. My my point with Romans is that joy starts that process, and then a new joy is found in obedient suffering, suffering without anger, suffering without blasphemy, suffering without murmuring at God. Be done with murmuring. Do all things without murmuring. When that miracle happens, that's a blood-bought new covenant achievement of the Spirit of God. And it is new. It's new. Oh, how sweet to walk through tests and pass. How sweet to know Christ is on me. Christ is real. So it's not only the joy of uh, tasting the sweetness of blood-bought sovereign imputation of Christ's righteousness or obedience, but also the joy of tasting the sweetness of blood-bought sovereign creation of obedience in us. Let me say that again. I'm saying Christian hedonists are really greedy for God. Really greedy. And they want to taste to the full the sweetness of the imputation to us of an alien righteousness, obedience of Christ, which takes away all our sin and opens eternity in the hope of the glory of God. Yes and amen. Being greedy as we are and finding in the New Testament, he bought something else. He bought, I wrote the law on your heart so that you would love my commandments. I put my spirit within you and I caused you to walk in my statutes and obey my commandments. And when that happens, you know me like you've never known me. You taste me in a new way. Don't miss it by only sending people back to justification. Every, every sermon has to be what? We'll get there in a minute. I have a few critiques to say about preaching that doesn't get this. Let me give you another text. 2 Corinthians 12. This one's even more precious, maybe, 
than, than Romans 5 because it's even more explicitly Christ-centered. Oh, if, if you get what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 to 10, you'll, you'll understand what I'm trying to say. My grace, so you know the situation. He's got the thorn in the flesh. God gave it to him because he's going to keep him humble after he's had these spectacular revelations. And he doesn't want it, and he's asked three times to take it away, and, and Christ won't take it away. It's very painful. That's why the word thorn is used. I mean, have you ever had a thorn, like, like poked in your head, like a crown of them or just a sticker? My grace, here's, here's your alternative, Paul. I'm not going to take it away. My grace is sufficient for you. Now, miss it. My grace is at stake here, Paul. <laughs> you know, if, if you were an ungodly person, if you were a fleshly person, you'd say, I don't care about your grace being magnified in this. I hurt. That's the way a lot of people relate to Christ. Get out of here with your self-exalting grace. I want this thorn taken away. Paul won't respond like that. His his response is off the chart spectacular. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And here's Paul's response to discovering You want to know more of me by power, Paul? You want to taste a kind of grace that I can perform for you that's different from justification? You want to taste some of that? And Paul says, therefore. That means because I see your grace and your power about to be active in my life or presently active, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly. That's one of the few places, by the way, where the Greek word for hedonism is used, hedonista. All the more gladly. Now, this is an added joy, an expanded joy. There was already a joy in the grace of the power of Christ to justify, forgive. Now there's more of Christ, more grace, more power to taste firsthand in real experience. More grace, more power to be tasted. Therefore, I'm still reading, therefore I will boast all the more gladly. Now he said it twice. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Episkenose ep eme. I'm going to, my power will tent with you. It will tabernacle with you. It will dwell with you. You want that new, you want that new, fresh, sweet experience of a grace Resting on you, oh, how precious are the tastes of the power of Jesus touching us, tenting with us, living with us in the struggle of obedience. 4, verse 10, for the sake of Christ then, I am content. New dimension of contentment. New tastes of contentment, new joy, 
with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak, then am I strong. A third glimpse, a third text. In Acts 5, Peter and the apostles were commanded to shut up and stop talking about this Jesus. And they didn't, and they were beaten and released. In fact, they said, we must obey God rather than men. And here's Acts 5.41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's a new joy. That's a new joy. It's not the same joy as justification. It's not the same as saying, I'm accepted, I'm loved. It's the tasting of the same Christ with a new work. Who are we that Christ would set his favor on us and make us suitable objects of shame? Who are we to be so privileged as to be shamed with him? I'm sure this is what Paul was talking about in in Philippians 3. I want to know him. I want to share his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death. If by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection. What's going on in that? Who talks like that? Somebody talks like that if they know there's more, there's more. I want to know him in the way he suffered. I want to know him in the way he died. I want to know all there is to know about him in my life, not just there at the beginning, but right through, walking through every trial. Hupomonen. Proved, tested, gold coming out on the other side, and oh, the joys of such joy. That's what 1 Peter 1 says as well. I mean, one more, maybe, illustration. This is, this is the most familiar text. I've used it over and over again. I haven't drawn out as many implications as I, I do now. This is Acts 20, verse 35. And Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. We must help the weak. This is love, right? We must help the weak. And then there's a participle. It doesn't come through in the ESV. Remembering. We must help the weak. Remembering. That is, by means of remembering. Now, just pause here. You're tired. It's late. I mean, Paul had to make tents, support himself. Then he worked all day, and he got tired, and, and he's supposed to help the weak. And he needs, he needs motivation. One of the kinds of motivation is here. Remember something. You get tired and you don't want to play with your kids anymore. You just want to veg. Remember something. You get tired. You don't want to make the hospital visit. Don't want to do it. Call somebody else. Let them do it. Remember something. Remember something. And here's what you're supposed to remember. Remembering that the Lord said, it is more blessed, makarion, 
to give than to receive. More blessed. More, more than what? More than receiving. And, and if there is a, a greater blessedness than you had before you did that, it's a new level of fight. Okay. There is joy to be had in generosity that you wouldn't have if you weren't generous. That's not a diminishment of the cross. Here's why, just to repeat myself. It was bought by the cross. And the only reason you can do it is because he bought it for you. If you believe in free will and that it all hangs on you, you got real ethical problems, real ethical problems. But if you believe that God triumphs over your will to make you able to give instead of received, when it happens, the joy is, he touched me. He kept me. He saved me. He changed me. He conquered me. That's a new taste. So when I defined love uh, in two ways, way back at the beginning, love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. I still believe that. And I defined it as love is the effort to expand our joy in Christ by including others. I believe that. They're both true. They're not contradictory. Now let me, in the last few minutes that we have, relate this to some weaknesses in gospel preaching in my tribe, say, the gospel, gospel-centered, I like the phrase. I'll I mention two, and just you test yourself. If the shoe fits, wear it, and change the shoe. Uh, and if it doesn't, rejoice. That'd be a new level of joy. Joy at your triumph by grace over not making this mistake. First, there is, there's a preaching that almost never highlights the truth that Christ died not only to secure our forgiveness, but to secure our sin-killing obedience. Almost never says it. Almost never draws people's attention to it. It's it, like 99% of the time, you're drawing attention to the fact that he died so that you could be justified and, and your guilt can be taken away and your sins can be forgiven, which is, of course, glorious. But you know what? Most of the New Testament is not talking that way. Read it. Read it. It's talking about how to do stuff. How to be the church. And you read the epistles. They don't, they don't sound like that. They don't. So what I'm saying is 1 Peter 1.24 doesn't get its fair shake. Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Christ died to purchase your obedience to hundreds of commands. 
and he died to purchase the spirit who dwells within you, who causes you to walk in his statutes. The beauty and the power of the cross of Christ is seen and enjoyed in the blood-bought experience of obedience to Christ's commands. Experiencing this is a dimension of joy that can be had no other way. And a Christian hedonist will not be content without it. That's my first concern. There's some preaching that is deficient in showing the whole purchase of the cross in its new covenant implications. And so the cross can be diminished by highlighting the cross alone. Here's my second way of saying it. These preachers tend to shrink back from the apostolic intention of the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.21 The law of Christ unfolded in hundreds of New Testament commands that define the path of love that leads to life. If you ask, what's the point of all these hundreds of commands in the New Testament? Don't we just need the Spirit? No, evidently not. Evidently, God's way is to give you the commands and give you the spirit who makes you love the commands. Could do, he could have done it another way. He could, the, the New Testament could be two, you know, one-third as long as it is. Christ died for you, purchased the spirit, go live by the spirit. End of book. Why? Why these hundreds of particular commandments? It's because he has another way to do it. He's going to do it another way. It's a better way. It's a better way. There's more joy to be had in figuring out how the Spirit relates to the commandments than if you only had the Spirit without the commandments. It's a better way or the Bible is false. I love the Bible, right? We love it. God, show me how these hundreds of commands are so good for us. So, here's my second. um, Let me say it again. They are reticent to draw attention to the law of Christ. But instead of calling for obedience to all these commandments, they say things like this. And this comes from a very artificial law-gospel distinction. This is not good. You can't, here's, here's what the commandments are for. Show hospitality, live without grumbling. You can't do that. Christ did it for you, perfectly hospitable. Never murmured. Trust the imputation of Christ's obedience. End of sermon. Celebrate. That's so foreign to the New Testament. That's just so foreign to the New Testament to talk like that. That's half a gospel based on half grace offering half joy. He accomplished more. (laughs) So much more 
by pouring out his blood for us. It's a blood-bought holiness. It's a blood-bought obedience. It's a blood-bought suffering through to hubermonane and fresh joy in him and his achievements on the cross. Don't preach a half gospel. All those commands are there to highlight the power of the Spirit bought by the blood of Jesus in your life. It's a grand achievement. It's a grand achievement. What he did in dying for us. All those commandments in the New Testament are not given merely to expose our sin. They are given to show us the kind of life Christ died to create in his church, really create in his church. They are given to us so that by doing them by faith in Christ's blood-bought power, gospel power, we might have more joy, more joy than only by circling back to justification. As precious and as often as we must do that. And it is joy in Christ. Let me close. I've got three and a half minutes, which is perfect. Just front burner, 73-year-old struggle, right? There is a couple. I give you their names, except I shouldn't. I know their names. They, they live in their car. They live in their car in Minnesota. They live by parking on my street. Sam knows them. I know them, and I called Sam. I said, don't call the police on them. I know them. We're going to work on this. The reason they're on our streets is because Sam and I don't call the police. And because there are no houses on the other side of the street. No, it, they can park there. They've been there since the summer. They come and they go. This is not easy for me. I'm a hedonist. And I'm supposed to be so happy in Jesus that I overflow with hospitality and do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Like if I were living in the car, what would I want from this rich guy who lives in that red house right there who has 100,000 times more than I do? What would I want? This is not easy for me to, get, to go to bed at night. What do I do? Well, I've got these motives. I'm supposed to be so full of Jesus. I'm so happy in him that I just go out there and invite him in. And there's mental issues going on. I mean, there are mental illness issues. This is a, we've been together to Jericho Road. They got transitional houses, options in front of them that are easy. We have paid for the fixing of their car. We have put them in motels three times. We have done everything we know to do to get this couple on the road. She's pregnant. The baby will be born in three weeks. She's living in a car. I'm saying they're going to take your baby, send them to St. Joseph's home. They won't let you have a baby in the car. There are mental illness issues. They can't, they can't see it. They can't see hope. They can't see a future. They just, they've, they pride themselves that we can make it. We do make it. It's remarkable how they make it. 
They get $523 a month from the government. They stand on the corner, he probably makes $28 an hour with his little sign. I give him money. No shame. This is our society. There's no easy fix here. But it was six degrees one night. Now, this is about three weeks ago. It was after Christmas. I had given him money. I'm not letting you out there during Christmas Eve. No way. Here's 300 bucks and a Bible. Go read the Bible and stay in a hotel and have a nice Christmas dinner. But it's six degrees now. And I said to Noel, I can't sleep tonight with them out there. I'm, is it okay? I mean, we got two empty bedrooms upstairs. Can I just go knock on their window and, and invite them in? And I've got a great wife. Sure. I mean, I quoted some verses. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Practice hospitality. You know what hospitality means in Greek? Love of strangers, not friends. It means love of strangers. More blessed to give than to receive. So, I went. I knocked on the window. He rolled it down. Hi. It's, I know. Called him by name. Said, it's really cold. I don't want you in your car tonight. Would you come in and spend the night with us? He turns around to his wife, snuggled in the back, all cozy and warm. It's toasty in there. They talk, and he turns and says, thanks anyway. Six degrees. Thanks anyway. I said, come on. I would be really happy if you did this. Which is a very hedonistic thing to say. <laughs> Thanks anyway. I said, look, you got to get a place. There are three places. We can put you in any of those places, pay for the gas, get you there. He said, we're still looking. And what he means is there are places we don't want to be. And we'll choose. Okay. So when I walked in to the house, I had two big feelings. One, sadness. This is so broken. This world is so broken. These people all around me are so broken. And I'm so sad I can't fix it. That's one feeling. And the other feeling was, I'm so happy I knocked on his window. And my wife is all in. And we conquered our selfishness, and we conquered our fear, and we conquered our greed. And we were willing to let him take our computers in the middle of the night if that's what he's going to do. That's awesome joy. It's awesome joy. And it's different. It's more. And I just, I just want you to figure this out with me. Okay? I'm still struggling. That was a absence of necessary overflow. It wasn't spontaneous. It was a struggle. And I had to preach to myself, it's going to be okay. He's going to take care of you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm on your side. It's going to be more blessed to give. More blessed? What if he, what if he, what if he, what if he? More blessed. Human money ain't happened. I'm real. 
and another test will come, and I'll probably wonder, am I real now? I mean, that's part of John Piper's struggle is how much evidence do you need to be at peace with God? Join me in the struggle. So I'm saying, be biblical in your preaching. Let's pray. Father, we, we want to overflow better. I, I would like for the fight for joy at the front end of obedience to be successful more often than it is. But, oh God, as you point us to acts of obedience and acts of love, which are costly and risky, and you promise, you go there, I'll go with you, I'll help you, and you will taste me, me, in a fresh way, and my blood will be exalted in your obedience. So go there and show your trust in me. Experience more of me. God, would you help us in this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from DesiringGod.org. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy and share from thousands of resources on our site, including books, sermons, articles, and more, available free of charge. DesiringGod.org exists to help you treasure Jesus more than anything else, because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him.